Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, glad you guys are here. Uh, welcome to our panel on Christian hospitality and Muslim immigration in an age of fear. Uh, let me open our time together in a word of prayer real quick. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, the gift of this time, uh, the opportunity to uh, think together and to talk together about uh, an issue that presents uh, real challenges. Um, how do we live uh, with difference? We pray that you'd be with us uh, during this time, that you would guide us in our thoughts and in our words, uh, that the conversation that we have here might bring honor and glory to you and might prod us to greater faithfulness in our efforts um, to bear witness to Jesus Christ's preeminence in all things. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I am really pleased to uh, introduce our distinguished panel this afternoon. Um, for those of you guys who are sitting on the floor, there are seats up front here or front row center if you want to go front row center. Um, so I'm just very quickly going to introduce our panelists who are, most of them are known to you, although you may not know all of the interesting details I'm about to share with you. Um, I'm going to introduce them quickly, and then um, the three members of our faculty are going to offer some uh, reactions to uh, Professor Kamink's book, um, and then we'll let him respond uh, to their reactions, and then uh, we'll dive into a conversation. Um, we would love to have you guys participate in the conversation, so after we get through some initial thoughts, I'm going to turn to you and hope that you have some insightful questions uh, to pose, um, either to Professor Kamink or to other members of our panel. And we are going to be finished by 5 p.m. Uh, so um, you got to hear a fuller bio on Matthew Kamink earlier, um, Assistant Professor of Christian Ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary, Associate Dean of their campus in Houston, uh, a research or a fellow with um, the Center for Public Justice in Washington, D.C., uh, who works a lot on reform public theology, uh, Islam and political ethics, workplace theology, theology and culture, um, holds uh, two PhDs, one in systematic theology from the Free University in Amsterdam and one in Christian ethics uh, from Fuller Theological Seminary and MDiv from Princeton Seminary. Um, next to him is Professor Jay Green, who is in his, my notes say 20th year. It's a misprint, yeah, I think it's for real. Uh, 20th year as professor of history here at Covenant, uh, authored the book Christian Historiography, Five Rival Versions, um, also edited the, edited the book Confessing History, Christian Faith, and the Historian's Vocation. Uh, both of those texts explore uh, the intersection between Christianity and historiography or the historian's craft. Um, he earned his PhD at Kent State University and an MA from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, and he is currently teaching modern Middle East um, so he's got some perspective uh, to bring to this conversation today. Uh, next to him is Professor Christiana Fitzpatrick. Uh, she is completing, it says here, 11th year, 11th year uh, at Covenant College. Um, she currently serves as Director of Global Education, um, which makes her the guru of intercultural competence on our campus. Um, so she works with students, faculty, and staff to facilitate study abroad, um, and other off-campus opportunities, as well as overseeing the Intercultural Learning Experience course. Um, some of you, I think, uh, recently went with her to Clarkston uh, down near Atlanta to work with refugees. Um, she spent a fair bit of time working with refugees in a variety of contexts, in addition to having spent significant time in Belgium, um, which is next door to the Netherlands. Uh, she earned her BA in English from Penn and an MA in education from Wake Forest University. And finally, uh, the rookie at the end of the row, um, is Professor John Rush, who is hurtling toward the conclusion of his second year at Covenant College. Um, he is an assistant professor of economics. In his research, he has explored the economic impact of natural disasters on places like Indonesia and El Salvador. Um, he's interested in the foundation structure of economic thought and how it should be understood and applied by uh, the church, um, and is interested in helping the church fulfill its calling to develop men and women um, who are disciples of Christ and stewards of Christ's world, especially in communities that face significant economic challenges. Uh, he earned his PhD and MA both from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, 
it's a great place to go to grad school if you've got to go to grad school, probably. Um, also has a master's in international management from Whitworth University and earned his BA in economics from Whitworth University. So both he and Dr. K. Mink are pirates. It's a panel with two pirates. Uh, would, that's a hook. Would you guys please welcome our panel? All right, we are going to go in order, seniority, highest to lowest. And so um, you guys had an opportunity here. Uh, Matthew Kamek speak this morning. We're just going to jump in and let uh, Professor Green, Fitzpatrick, and then Rush um, give some reactions to Professor Kamek's work. Uh, good afternoon. Thank you all for, uh, for being here and grateful, especially for our, our speaker, uh, Professor Kamek. Um, I am uh, really feel honored to even be a part of the conversation. This is a spectacular book uh, and timely, probably more so than you even realized at the time you were finishing the manuscript. And I, um, uh, I think it's particularly important for us to think about the value of bringing our theological categories into conversation with major social formations all around us that are really a part of our everyday lives. I mean, I think we know that our theological uh, categories are meaningful to the real world, uh, but for someone who is engaged in, and this is the discipline uh, of our speaker, is public theology, uh, I think it's important that we make our theological understanding public, and there, there probably isn't a more pressing set of uh, issues and concerns today than the challenge of pluralism and some of the issues dealing with uh, global refugee crises and immigration and uh, emergent movements of nationalism. And I think having to uh, engage these not just as matters of concern uh, as citizens and as those who have to live uh, within the social realities of these, but also as believers who uh, want to do so faithfully uh, is important. And having uh, leadership like this uh, and, and a guide to offer this kind of uh, these kinds of insights is hugely important. So grateful for for that. Uh, and just keeping my uh, really just had two um, two thoughts um, or maybe three. Uh, one. Um, I wonder if uh, the challenge for evangelicals in dealing with uh, the issues you raise in your book uh, isn't, you deal a lot with, with, with Islam, but I think that uh, the number of Muslims who live in the United States for whom we as American evangelicals are interacting with on a daily basis um, is, is relatively small. Uh, and one of the things I've been struck by, and I wonder if this is something that, given, given the last chapter or so of your book, uh, I wonder if this is a part of your um, calculus as well, is that we have a much bigger, more general problem of cultural and racial difference. Uh, the fact that Islam has been a particularly emotionally important issue for us abroad, and certainly Europeans see it with it in a more real way, but I, I think what you say about the challenge of Islam and Muslim immigration in your book isn't also just more generally true of the way we are dealing with immigration more generally. And, and I wonder what that means, because I think that the, if we get too far down in the weeds in dealing with Islam, we might lose a little bit uh, the forest for the trees. And I wonder if there isn't just a, a bigger question of our inability to process worldview plurality and think about the problem of pluralism as Christians uh, in, in a more general sense. And you do deal with it in a very general sense. So I think that that's, um, that, that's an issue. I just think we probably uh, continue to, uh, to, to uh, is really beyond us. Uh, I think one of the most challenging thing of living for me in the sort of the Trump era is coming to terms with how much I probably was dealing with a, with a progressive worldview, believing that we were moving toward an ever greater 
understanding and ability and the world was, was we're all going to get along. And, and, and I, I don't think I really, if you'd asked me, do you believe that? I was like, well, of course not. But I kind of did. Uh, and that's why the era of Trump and the evangelical response in affirmation of his propositions have been so shocking to me, reminding me of how little progress we've actually made as evangelicals in thinking about how to live in a diverse public. So that's, that's something that I, I think your book speaks to, but I wonder if you can ad address uh, some of those bigger questions. So one other thing. Um, you said in chapel this morning that uh, there hasn't been a successful social order that has been based on fear and has been driven by kind of the imperatives of the high wall approach. Um, but I also wonder if um, uh, what we're to make of the legacy of Kuiper, who has been gone now for uh, almost 100 years, and it seems as though um, I, I that's also a legacy that I wonder. Um, uh, well, I, my, my, okay. I, I think the Kuiperian vision is compelling in all kinds of ways, but I wonder where in even small circumstances uh, we can find it having been successful or worked out in some meaningful, in, in some meaningful ways. Um, and that isn't to say that that should be the measure by which we d determine whether it's su successful or not, but I wonder um, how we think about Kuiper as a fairly marginal figure, an almost forgotten figure in, in the Netherlands. And that doesn't mean that he was not m meaningful or important, but is there, some, is there something there that we can think about in terms of whether or not he's, uh, he offers us guidance? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be quiet, but you, those are just a couple options. My remarks will be shorter than Dr. Green's, per usual. <laughs> um, I am so thankful for this book um, and thankful for the opportunity to read it. Uh, I read it a little out of order. Probably you guys do that with class reading, too. You kind of pick the chapters that you think you really want to hear what he has to say here and then kind of work backwards. And so... Um, a couple of things that that um, that really struck me. Uh, one was the idea of um, a Christology that goes beyond the kingship of Christ, and I think you're probably going to talk about this in chapel tomorrow. But the crucified Christ, um, who exposes um, his own nakedness, but really exposes the nakedness of us as humanity and us as as Christians, um, and thinking about that as as a way to um, to understand our interaction with others, that we actually need to be exposed at our hearts um, uh, for for who we are, and then uh, receive uh, receive Christ and to to know who He is fully in that in that way. Um, so so that really that struck me. Um, in addition, I thought of um, this idea of Christians really being the church, really being transformed by our interaction with our neighbors so that it's not just a it's not just what we're called to do to treat our neighbors well but that in doing so we're actually going to be changed and transformed and so by by interacting in love with others um, Christ is changing us um, and so I it I have learned so much from interacting in different populations, um, Muslim populations in particular around the world, and learning hospitality from them, um, really in ways that I never experienced in a Christian context. Um, and so I wonder, even as we think about Christian hospitality, how much we will learn about what we're called, how we're called to be hospitable by interacting with our neighbors, whether they are Muslim or, or otherwise. Um, in taking students to Clarkston each year, getting a chance to interact um, in Greece last year as we, we interacted with the church there as they were really receiving um, so many refugees, thinking about how do we show mercy, not 
in order to get something or in order to get a response from them or um, as a way to, yes, you want more people to come into the kingdom, but we show mercy because we've been shown mercy. Um, and so, so thinking about what does it mean to live Christianly um, in, in really personal ways. And so I, I've really loved how um, kind of you, you move it from the theoretical, political into, into the personal neighborliness um, and thinking how, yeah, how, th how that will change us, how it must change us if we are going to be Christian neighbors um, to those we, we interact with. So, yeah, I appreciated your book so much. I'm so glad we have another pirate here. Uh, don't see them very often, although we've had one before, so hopefully this helps the reputation. I, I really enjoyed the book. I, I think there are all kinds of ways I was thinking about global trends as I was, I was reading this book. And I think in some ways what I hope people don't lose from the title is how I think generally valuable it is in terms of, as uh, Dr. Green was saying, in terms of so many of the issues we're facing. And one of the things that just grabbed me given where we are in terms of Covenant College and some of the questions as an institution that we're thinking about, is you talk about how one of the important things we need to develop is a network, an ecosystem of institutions representing our tradition, and we're part of that here at Covenant. And you also make a comment at the end that they can't be the same sorts of institutions with the same attitude that we had when we were sort of culturally dominant, and they need to change. So I think as a, as a member of one of these institutions, that cares about this, hearing more about uh, getting help about how, how do we need to think differently, how might we need to change in that way. And another one, how do we help the church learn to care about this, these sorts of institutions? And I think partially culture will do that for us as, as culture changes in ways that aren't friendly toward us, then caring about that sort of thing might happen some more. But there's a lot, I think, of even some intentional of sort of the idea that so the cultural institutions are okay. It's not bad to use them. It's not unchristian, right, to send your kid to a public school. Christians can do that. But in some ways, by sending that message, we undermine some of that idea that actually it's also really important to have institutions that are born of our own, our own convictions. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, and thank you for the, the kind words. That's nice. My mother is reading my book right now, and she is not. She doesn't have a Twitter account, so she just texts me when she likes something. It's, it's very encouraging to have your mother read a book. Um, <clears throat> so a, a, a couple of responses here. Um, uh, one, the comments. Uh, First, Jay, the, the comment about Islam being relatively small, and isn't this book just about pluralism uh, more broadly, or difference more broadly? And yes, it, it absolutely is. So I think there are, I hope that there are things in here that can help us demonstrate uh, hospitality, not only towards Islam, but towards other religions, um, towards uh, uh, races and socioeconomic levels that are not our own, political differences, um, cultural, ethnic. Um, yeah, it's, this is a book about difference. Uh, and it's a book about how we, uh, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, um, try and have a redemptive imagination uh, towards healing uh, across those differences, but not looking to uh, solve the problem by wiping out the difference, but uh, contending with our differences uh, with affection uh, for one another. Um, but the reason why I didn't write a book that's just about difference in the general is uh, I wanted to wrestle with one of the hardest topics or questions that I could handle. And that's because um, it seems to me that uh, a theology of religious freedom, a theology of religious hospitality, if it's going to stand, it has to be able to stand up against the toughest questions and the hardest questions. Um, and uh, I was saying this in our lunch discussion today. It, I, I thought to myself, 
it's, it's not at all surprising when Christians defend their own religious freedom, you know, their own schools, their own institutions, their own associations, uh, sort of defending their religious rights. That's a good thing. Um, but when Christians defend those that they disagree with, when they defend uh, a Muslim institution that is being demonized, for example, that's a gospel thing. Like, that's profound. That's surprising. No one in the news is amazed when Christians defend their own religious rights and freedoms, right? It's not shocking to anyone when someone claims that there's a war on Christmas, right? Um, but I'll tell you what is shocking is, um, you know, that um, all of those mosques being burned in the Netherlands um, after that murder took place, there were about 30 mosques that were burned or uh, graffitied. What is surprising is that uh, a group of Christians walked over to a mosque in the Netherlands, knocked on the door, and said, you don't know us, but we're here to guard your mosque tonight. And we're going to stay here until this stops. And they called their other pastors and their other um, members of their churches, and they marched around the mosques in the Netherlands to make sure that they are safe. That's a gospel thing. Um, you know, this, uh, the statement that you made about, um, Trump felt like a setback to you that, um, um, you had, you had thought that evangelicals had sort of made some progress, I think, uh, but that was sort of a disappointment, a surprise. A surprise. Um, I think that, uh, one of my favorite commentators on, um, evangelicals in Islam said that, um, if you listen to American evangelicals talk about Islam, if you listen to them talk about Muslims, uh, you, weren't, you won't actually learn very much about Muslims, but you will learn a lot about evangelicals. And I think um, uh, the Trump election or, or these sorts of things, uh, we're learning uh, about ourselves. And I think in this debate about Muslim immigration, in the debate about Syrian refugees and how many we will or will not take, uh, we're learning some important things about ourselves. Um, and uh, yeah, so that resonated with me. Um, on the Kuiper legacy, and has it been successful or hasn't it? Um, um, I think what I would say is that I'm not, <coughs> I'm not uh, really a part of the Dutch Reformed Institution building uh, movement. Um, I think there are a lot of really wonderful ideas within Kuiper that we can apply and, and creatively think about and wrestle with. Um, but the, the history of the Kuiperian movement is much more complex than just uh, that man. And so um, it's just a very complex story, and I don't, I'm not well trained to respond to um, that whole sort of Kuiperian history. Um, but tomorrow I'm going to talk just a little bit about ways in which we need to move beyond that in terms specifically of his Christology and uh, in his uh, understanding of what it means to follow Christ in a pluralist world. So, um, yes. Um, and yes, so on the topic of Christology, vulnerability, and nakedness, that's what I'm talking about tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I don't want to spill it, but I, I think that um, it, it does go to talk about um, our need not only to respect sort of the rights and freedoms of Muslim neighbors, but to think about how we actually um, interact, show vulnerability and hospitality with them. So it's one thing, Kuiper gives us lots of great tools for respecting Muslim rights, freedom and dignity, but he doesn't give us a lot of tools for the interaction, for the hospitality, for the learning. Um, on your, um, on this discussion about it's in the interaction with Muslims that we learn something. I think that's really uh, profound. And 
I think it's important for students of theology to recognize um, that there are multiple ways in which we can do theology, multiple ways in which we can learn about God, speak of God, and grow in our knowledge of God. Books and lectures is one way. We were just talking before this session about um, my own experience with global education when I was in college. I did study abroad, so uh, thank you so much for what you do. Um, go see Christiana, global <laughs> education. Um, but it is, it is in that interaction, it's in that practice, that practice of hospitality. And I'll tell a quick story um, about that. Um, it was a, a church planter that I met uh, in a multicultural neighborhood of uh, Amsterdam that was 50% uh, Muslim and only about 15% uh, native Dutch people in this neighborhood. And he wanted to plant a church. And like many sort of eager church planters, he marched into the neighborhood and he said, I'm going to demonstrate hospitality to them. I'm going to you know, care for these, these poor multicultural people. Um, and he started inviting them to meals, and uh, none of them wanted to come. <laughs> and it was because, frankly, he was treating them like passive patients that he was going to work on and save. And he was discouraged, and um, at one point, he just kind of had given up and asked his, uh, I think it was an Ethiopian neighbor, he just said, hey, that smells really good. Would you make some of that for me? She was making her own traditional Ethiopian food. And, and she was thrilled to do so. And um, he discovered something, <laughs> that these communities have amazing food and amazing stories connected with that food. And he started to invite his neighbors over in groups to cook for one another and to share stories. You know, this is, this is my mother's recipe she taught me, here's the story behind that, and it started to honor the cultures and the cultural stories that came with it. Um, there in this neighborhood of Amsterdam, there were Moroccans and Algerians, um, Turkish, uh, there were Caribbean cultures, and they all started bringing their food to one another and sharing their stories. And a very different church emerged out of that. Um, the church was called Oasa, it means oasis. And um, it was a space in which immigrant communities um, could offer their stories and their identities. And you have to understand that in the Dutch context, uh, these individual immigrants were, were treated like um, sort of patients of the state. They have a social worker come to them for this, and a psychologist come to them for this, and a food person, and a healthcare person, and they're all sort of working on these people. Um, and they never have an opportunity to share their story. They're, they are problems to be solved, you know. And in that, uh, they were humanized. And in that, he learned about hospitality, and he learned about Jesus in and through that. And so there's an important aspect in which we need to learn to be guests. Um, uh, on the ecosystem of institutions, that's an interesting uh, question, e ecosystem and, and networks. Um, in the news, I don't know if you've seen, but a ver another very prominent pastor has been um, accused of sexual abuse. And um, evangelicals, I would say, um, have a culture of celebrity uh, rather than uh, caring for institutions. They care for singular uh, rock stars. And uh, evangelicals are losing a love for age old and an appreciation for institutions um, and uh, a willingness to serve and love and invest in institutions. We tend to think of institutions as a drag as uh, constrictive, uh, as things that keep us from being truly us. Um, and so uh, evangelicals build up celebrities who have big brands and big Twitter followings. And, um, and it's a real problem. 
not only because of these abuse cases, but because um, institutions are what are what give us life. So when I think of my own story, you know, I was just introduced. Uh, it's a story of institutions. You know, Whitworth College invested in me. Princeton, Fuller, they invested in me. The Christian Reformed Church invested in me. Uh, I'm a fellow at the Center for Public Justice, which is a Christian institution that wants to think about faithful political life. Those institutions really do matter. And right now, um, so many evangelical Christians in America don't understand the deep value of institutions. And so that's a big teaching issue for us uh, about why they matter. Yeah, those are my initial thoughts there, Mr. President. Thank you, all of you. <clears throat> um, because we have less than a half an hour left, uh, I want to make sure I give you guys plenty of opportunity to ask questions. So as these folks have been talking, are there any uh, questions out there that you might want to lob toward our panelists? Yeah, Paul. The strategy for conquest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think what I would say is that Islam is a global religion of over one billion people. And so like Christianity, it's quite diverse. So uh, David Duke of the KKK claims to be a Christian, and so do I. Um, and so there are a wide variety of uh, cultural strategies within the Christian church. There are also the same uh, with Islam. So, but right now, Islam makes up about 2% of the American population, and that 2% is extremely diverse. And so, um, how that 2% will institute uh, an overthrow of the American empire, being that it's divided, is difficult for me to imagine. I'll, I'll just add, too, we had Philip Jenkins here. When was Philip Jenkins here? A decade ago? Um, but in his book on Europe is God's Continent, I think, is the title of that book. We had some very interesting things to say about the, uh, the degree to which Muslims who have uh, immigrated to Europe uh, are, are largely are becoming secular much more rapidly than they are effectively proselytizing within Europe. And so the great concern among a lot of the Muslim families who have moved to Europe is are we losing our children yep to European secularism, because the European secularism is more appealing to their kids than... Yeah. Um, They're also uh, converting to Christianity quite a lot, too. So a big hope for the European church right now, which is dying old and white, is they're being revived. They're being, they're being revived by immigrant communities because uh, the gospel is a tremendous opportunity. So rather than... So my argument is, rather than seeing it as a, a danger of being overtaken, it's it's actually a profound mission opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in Athens, or we were in Athens, Greece last summer, um, and spent some time there with uh, an Iranian, uh, the Iranian Evangelical Church of Athens, which is composed almost entirely of uh, Iranian refugees and. The pastor there said that he had performed over 400 baptisms in the last four years. I don't know there's ever been a year when Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church has done 100 baptisms. Maybe when they've been particularly fertile, but um, I mean, certainly not 100, no, certainly not 100 baptisms of adult, uh, adult converts. And to, and I, the average tenure in that church is six months. And so we asked, well, what's happening? And he said, well, these people are then moving on to Germany or to Sweden. And then two months later, I was at a, a conference in California and, and met 
um, a Swedish believer who said, oh, yes, it's wonderful. My church in Stockholm is being revived by all of these Iranian and Syrian believing refugees who are coming to, to Sweden. Um, yeah, so there's, a very, there's some very interesting dynamics. Um, it's a great question, though, Paul. Someone else had a hand up. Uh, Ian? Um, I would just say that they're, they're different books. So he's a legal scholar and is very interested in the questions around um, the around the legal uh, freedoms of association. And as a theologian, I'm a lot more interested in our spiritual posture towards these things and how the nature of God and God's hospitality uh, sheds light on these things. So but they're they're deeply connected. Uh, they're just different books, but I love that book. It's a wonderful book, and we need more legal scholars thinking about the implications of deep pluralism for law. So, but my hope is that this book would not only inspire legal scholars, um, but also nurses, you know, working in hospitals and teachers and business people who all interact with Muslims as well. It's not just a legal issue, which John knows. All right, I don't even know where to go here. Uh, Some of we'll go Morgan. That was wonderful. So I just uh, shared an article, um, just wrote a little article just on headscarves. So I was uh, shopping for cereal in my grocery store in Houston, and we have a large Muslim population, and I had five Muslim women go by me, all in headscarves. And uh, as we were all shopping for cereal together. <laughs> now I, and uh, I was thankful uh, I had a moment where I was really struck by uh, thankfulness for them. Now, I, I disagree with Islam on a whole, whole host of theological and political issues, and I don't think God wants women to wear headscarves, and yet I was grateful at that moment, and I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, there's a boldness. Uh, I can be an anonymous Christian whenever I want, right? Their convictions are right there. You know, they're covered up, but they are exposed right there. And people are free to make judgments about them and assume they know why they wear that, right? And um, as a Christian, I can, I can privatize my faith whenever I want to. <coughs> and um, so I was grateful. I was also grateful uh, that at that moment, there's, um, there's a resistance to uh, the sexualization of women that um, while, once again, I have disagreements, I, I'm grateful that that, that that voice is present in my country. Uh, there's a resistance to consumerism, you know, right there. Um, there's also a resistance to a growing sense in modernity that faith is a private thing. 
that the, 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 you, the deepest sentiments of your heart are something that you should keep to yourself. And they're resisting that. And they're, they, just by walking around, they are asking me what I believe. And uh, consumerism doesn't want me to think about what I believe, right? It just wants me to go numb and buy stuff. And they are asking, right, when, when my Muslim neighbors walk by, who are you? What are you about? What are you for? And so, yeah, I'm grateful uh, in that. Yeah. Anyone else on the panel want to speak to that or speak to your own experience? I mean, I, I'm, I'm convinced that um, as our culture changes, that it will increasingly become the case that Christians, serious Christians, stand out. And, and it may not be for a particular time type of dress, but I think there are, are ways in which we live and act that will look increasingly odd. Um, I mean, involvement in corporate worship, or perhaps setting a day a week aside for rest begins to make you a bit of a cultural outsider. I can, I can promise you the first time that you uh, decide that your kids aren't going to participate in club soccer because it's on Sundays and you don't want to be traveling on Sunday mornings, people start to look at you sideways like you're a, a bit of a freak. Um. Yeah, I just I thought of also um, the Philip Jenkins book and the ways in which we, in our sense of having an existential um, battle against Islam as the greatest mortal enemy of the world, and I'm not saying it, it, it doesn't constitute an illegitimate uh, global threat in places, uh, but that we feel so much more as though uh, the culture of uh, pretty aggressive secularism in Europe is more our ally. And that, that was one of the things that, that in Jenkins' uh, observation, you just realize that in all kinds of the most important ways, we have much greater, um, we have a much gr more in common with, with uh, Muslim men and women around the world to the degree that there is something much bigger than them to which they owe their lives and have a sense of deference to, and a set of boundaries to work within and live within uh, that uh, we also believe is true of us and have and are much more vi visually and visibly uh, bound by those. Uh, I think that's something we, we really do uh, need to give, give more thought to. And, uh, and be willing to uh, acknowledge. I appreciate the emphasis in your book on co-belligerency and having a greater sense of asking the question of what, where, what are the areas of cultural life and political life and social life for which we can come link arm in arm with people for whom we have other profound deep differences that we don't want to sort of paper over but also want to sort of move forward on. And that's uh, very helpful. In addition, I think one of one of the challenges when we interact with people who are of different faiths or come from different cultures is that we start, as Christians and as American Christians, we start to have to pick apart what are some of the differences between our Americanness and our and our Christianity, and it forces some of those issues that we have kind of taken for granted. This is Christian instead of realizing maybe this is more American. Than Christian, and I think that's a really helpful exercise, and not just an exercise, like it's a necessity, it's a spiritual discipline of sorts to kind of take that apart a little bit, um, and we need help to do that. We need a community to do that, a, a Christian community, but we also need a community of others who may see the world really differently than us. I think it's really important. Oh man, our hands up all over the place. Should we have a faculty question? Professor Petcher.
Uh, yeah, that's um, so big question. Um, a, f a few differences between um, France is is quite militantly atheistic um, in terms of their model. So they use public schools as a way to assimilate all French citizens into secular liberalism in a very aggressive way, um, as opposed to the Netherlands, which has a, a diverse range of schools. So the Netherlands has you know, Muslim and Christian or Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, uh, all different kinds of schools. Um, and uh, the UK has much more of sort of a pragmatic uh, relationship, uh, conversation with, with different religions. What can we learn as Christians from these different? Um, I think f from the French example, uh, I think it's just so overtly dogmatic. It's secularism as a religion that must convert Muslims and, and Christians and uh, Sikhs into secular French liberté. Um, I think it, it really does expose that. Here in the United States, um, Christianity and modern democracy have kind of been fused, and we see them as, as quite sim similar partners. But in France, you see some stark differences because they're so fervent. Um, but there's so much more to say to that. It's, it's just a big question. All right, we're going to go down here, and then we're going to get work this way. So, yeah, go ahead. wonderful question. So this book is not a moderate book. I'm not calling for a little bit of high walls and a little bit of open doors. At least I hope not. Uh, I'm not calling for, let's, let's be a little bit right and let's be a little bit left, but it's actually an alternative way about thinking about human beings, who we are and how we live together. Um, the problem with open doors and high walls is that they have nothing to say about how you actually live together once you're in the house. And that's why tomorrow's talk is called Table Politics. It's about talking about what happens when we sit down at the table and how we sit with one another. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite sociologists looking at, the, at uh, this issue in, in Europe, he says, if, if the nation is going to be a home, like where we, where we feel at home, deep racial, religious, uh, sexual, political differences. If, if we're going to feel at home, uh, it has to be a home with multiple rooms, not just one room that's dominated by one group of people who define all of the rules. So um, what we really need is not uh, a moderate position between high walls and open doors, because if you have two wrong answers, you don't want to shoot between them, right? <laughs> yeah, so it really is, we need, we need a third way of thinking about it. And theologically speaking, um, both of those options are theologically bankrupt. They don't start and end with Christ, which is where we need to go. We have to start and end with Christ. I can't, I can't think about politics without thinking about Easter. You can't ask me to do that.
I was going to say that's accurate. Oh, I feel you, bro. <laughs> Um, so I went to college for four years, and I didn't have any Muslim roommates or friends. And I don't feel like I was sinning because I didn't have any Muslim friends uh, for four years. And I don't think you are either. I think there are times in our life when we're called to go to college, and that's a good thing. And um, I think what's important to do is, is thinking about in thinking about your college experience is the most important thing to realize is that it's not for you. Um, Covenant College doesn't exist for you. It exists for the life of the world. So um, it exists for you to go and serve. And so this is a preparation um, for you to demonstrate hospitality for a whole lifetime, the hospitality of the gospel. And so, um, and God may not be calling you to demonstrate hospitality of Muslims, right? It might be a group of another race. It, 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 I don't know what neighborhood you're going to be called to. You know, I don't, I don't know what city you're going to be called to. Um, but it's the life of the gospel. And so, um, so I would say that. So th think about your education as a preparation for hospitality. Because if you, if you live the rest of your life as if college was just to help you make a lot of money and increase your power, then, yeah, that's a problem, right? Um, but don't, don't feel guilty about being up here. It's a good place. It's a really good place. And, you know, Whitworth, like Covenant, prepared me really well to have that, that posture of hospitality, of not being afraid of hard questions, because you're going to have hard questions for a long time. You may get called Jamaica. You never know. I would say, first of all, we don't solve people. Um, and I would say that um, one thing we need to do uh, with our, our brothers and sisters who are fearful. Well, f first of all, you should know that in the Netherlands, the people that are the farthest right-wing nationalist anti-Muslim voters uh, are the ones that are way out in the rural areas who have never met Muslims. Um, statistically speaking, that's where they, they live. Um, so we know that interacting with Muslims, like real-life Muslims, that has an impact on people. Practicing hospitality is not just a gift. It, 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 it impacts you. Um, but I would say practicing hospitality with your hometown and asking them questions. Um, it, it's common to go, go home from college with, uh, I'm going to fix my rural hometown, right? I'm going to solve this, and I'm going to tell them how backward they are and how, you know, narrow-minded they are. I know you're not going to do that. But, um, but to actually demonstrate hospitality to them and ask, explore those fears um, and ask them where that comes from and then start to ask them how their faith connects with those fears, you know. So if Easter is real, if Jesus is king, Connect me with that and your fear about this. Help me draw a line for me. 
between this statement in the Old Testament that says, you were slaves in Egypt, you were foreigners, you had no land. Demonstrate hospitality to the foreigners amongst you. Ask, ask them, how, how do you connect this story of Israelite hospitality to foreigners to, what, to this question here? And ex- explore it in that way and make that space. And, and that can be a, a fruitful conversation. I mean, it's, it's natural for folks to, to be wary of the other, yeah. right? So this is not an inherently, well, it's a normal human thing. Yeah. I don't know if I want to say it is or isn't inherently bad. It's just a normal human thing and something that folks have to, that all of us have to work through uh, at some point in our life. Was all gearing up to hear his answer. Re- repeat the end of your question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I have to admit that I read the read your book with a little bit of despair because I, I've read really good, rich discourse about these kinds of things for a while. And as I alluded to already, I feel such a sense of hopelessness about the eager readiness to erect as high a wall as, I mean, a literal wall uh, as 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 possibly so I don't I actually don't know and, and and the hard thing is so many of the people that I know who are inclined in this direction are dear people who are warm lovers of Jesus practicers of hospitality usually in very homogeneous kinds of communities and are ones who will give you the shirt off their back in all kinds of circumstances but who are governed, so it seems, in all kinds of ways by such a deep and abiding fear, very often, and if those fears were actually, uh, in all cases, true, maybe justifiably fearful, uh, that I don't, I don't know um, how to square the circle that the book calls us to, aside from, like, of course, you know, Jesus can do everything, and all things are possible, and I believe that, but I don't, I, I, I want are, are, are these conversations that we're having in places like this among the probably largely already convinced, uh, do they matter to the congregation of Pastor Jeffress in Dallas, Texas? Uh, and, and, are, and are they likely to be moved by this? What part of it are they going to be appealed to? So I, I, I don't know. Uh, I would say a couple things. One is there's a woman named Christine Pohl. P-O-H-L, and she has a tremendous book on hospitality. Beautiful book. The other thing is, uh, you know, uh, you and I are white, and white people are really bad at hospitality. As a, as a culture, we really struggle with individualism, and, um, and I think that this is, once again, why diversity matters, because there are many other cultures in this world that are tremendously gifted at this, that we can learn from, and um, and this is this is a way, honestly is t- to go <laughs> and interact with people who do not look like us and um, and interact with them and learn from them, and but you you mentioned family dinners, you know, and going out with people and how that's going away and how do we change that? 
We have family dinners. Uh, we make ourselves available. Uh, we don't fill our schedules, you know. But um, we, we just do that. We start to cook. Um, it really is, practicing hospitality is a practice, which means you're going to be bad at it when you start, right? Just like scales on a piano. You're going to be bad at it. And just embrace how bad you are at it. And that's how you start. That's great. All right, we are, uh, we are to the end of our time. I didn't even have time to ask you. I mean, you, you've been hiding behind your theologian hat. And we didn't even get your poli-sci undergraduate degree. I was going to ask you what uh, the U.S.'s immigration policy should be. We'll have to save that for another conversation. <laughs> um, but I do want to say, I mean, Matthew referenced it. Uh, the, the, the church has never been so effective a witness as when it has proposed an alternative way that, that just defied the existing categories. I think if you look at the history of the church, that is when the church has been an effective witness um, and so there's a call in Matthew's work to us to be uh, different, um, to be countercultural in the way we think about these sorts of issues, to be faith, biblically faithful and countercultural. Um, so I would encourage you guys to do that. I would also encourage you, you heard already, tomorrow's chapel, K-Mink on nakedness. Who wouldn't want to come to a Tuesday chapel for that? Um, would you guys please thank the panel before you leave? <laughs>